Welcome to the Fed Heads, a weekly podcast from Grant Thornton Public Sector. Join the Fed Heads, Robert Shea and Francis Rose, each week to talk about the arcana of government management and the people who are working hard every day to improve it. Welcome to episode 45. I'm Francis Rose. And I'm Robert Shea. One of the things that's about to change, or already started to change dramatically in Washington, is the oversight environment especially on the House side, as the House has transitioned from Republican majority to a Democratic majority, we have seen discussions about what is about to happen to people in the administration, to people that deal with the administration, and a lot more. And uh, it's useful, I think, to examine what that landscape could look like and how it would be different six months from now, a year from now, two years from now than it is today. That's right. You know, I uh, cut my teeth in the oversight world. My very first job in Washington was with the uh, House Committee on Government Reform and Oversight. Congressman Lincoln <laughs> in the 1850s. God bless the still-kicking uh, Bill Clinger from Pennsylvania. Um, uh, right after the Republicans had taken over uh, the Congress after 40 years in the wilderness. So it's a little analogous to the situation we find ourselves in today, a Republican administration with a new Democratic majority in the, South, in the House, and lots of stories about a rush of oversight. Congress has a really important role to play in ensuring the efficiency and effectiveness and ethical uh, behavior in the executive branch. And that balance really is only strongest when one party has control of one branch and the other has the power in the other branch, which is where we find ourselves today. Our guest today has terrific insight into both sides of this equation. Emily Loeb is a partner at Jenner and Block. And you're a partner, Emily, welcome, first of all. Thank Thank you you for coming in. You're a partner in the firm's government controversies and public policy litigation practice. We have to talk about that, and we will later on in the program. But before you were there, you were in the executive branch. Give us just a thumbnail kind of elevator speech about what you did in the White House. Sure. Uh, I, I worked in the White House Counsel's Office, and you know, there's a number of lawyers that work in the White House Counsel's Office. But uh, my job and uh, my coworker's job was primarily to work with Congress and work with agencies in responding to oversight requests and you know, making sure that the White House was responsive to requests, um, but also, frankly, protecting the executive branch's prerogatives uh, where we had concerns that um, the request might implicate some of the privileges what are you know usually referred to as executive privilege, but there's actually a couple of specific privileges that are a little bit different that executive branch lawyers are mindful. But there's ways to get information to Congress to meet their needs sometimes without actually encroaching on those privileges, and we would try and work cooperatively with our colleagues down Pennsylvania Avenue to get them what they needed. Mm-hmm. Tell a little bit about what this dynamic looks like. Will we see a rush of oversight, and what makes this situation really position us for a more dynamic oversight on the part of the Congress? Sure. So recently, uh, in the last couple of years, the Department of Justice has come out and said that ranking members don't have the power to conduct oversight, nor do individual members of Congress, only really committee chairmen or chairwomen. And now, with Democrats taking control of the House, they'll have the power uh, to conduct oversight, both sort of through low, uh, less coercive, I should say, oversight, just writing letters. So in, in its usual form, you start with a letter. 
hey, we heard about this thing. We're concerned about it. Can you answer these questions in written form or provide these documents? Um, or ultimately, frankly, issuing subpoenas. And in the last couple of Congresses, the House has dramatically expanded the use of subpoena power, creating what people refer to as unilateral subpoena power. And we actually don't know yet how many committees under this Congress will retain some form of that unilateral subpoena power, but we'll know over the next couple of months as the committees issue their rules. Because each committee has to adopt its own rules, and so that subpoena power would be embedded there. That's right. So does each committee then develop its own trajectory on how it wants to pursue the oversight that it conducts, or is there a standard legal step of group of steps that are taken to go from the uh, initial letter of inquiry to a subpoena and forcing someone to come in and talk? So there's slightly different rules in each committee, but there really are standard ways to operate. And because the two branches of government are co-equal, and ideally you should work cooperatively to meet each other's needs, we actually call it the accommodations process, the super wonky term for it. Oh, you're you're speaking our language. (laughs) Exactly. So and really what that means is accommodating each other's interests. Uh, what typically happens is you start with that letter. And there's an Office of Legislative Affairs in each of the agencies that are people whose main job it is to interface with Congress. They receive that letter and they go talk to the people at the agency who might have the relevant information and say, hey, what do you think about this letter? Are these documents that we can you know, easily provide? Maybe there's an easier way rather than you know, digging through thousands of documents. We could bring somebody up and brief the committee staff. We could talk to them about this before we sort of start that process. And really what the letter does is kick off a process of negotiation, uh, unless it turns, you know, more coercive faster, which does sometimes happen in more acrimonious situations. But here I would expect that House Democrats have been sending letters without the power over the last year before this election. And they'll use some of the ongoing work that that they had been conducting with their staff and sort of flip it over now in this new Congress and, you know, put it on the committee letterhead and start proceeding that way. What drives the acceleration of the acrimony that you referenced a moment ago? What makes somebody go, forget this, let's just get them in here however we have to get them in here. There's this presumption, right, that Congress has this presumption that it is owed whatever it's requesting. And so anything less than what they've requested, um, it sort of gets their dander up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that executive branch lawyers and, you know, uh, the House and Senate will never actually agree on what the contours of these privileges are. And it's really interesting that in all the years that this country's been in existence, this has only come to a head a few times in court. There's very limited case law on it because usually there's good faith negotiation negotiations between the two sides to try and meet each other's needs so that you avoid this big fight. So in the Obama administration, uh, President Obama actually only asserted executive privilege once, and that was in Fast and Furious. And then Attorney General Eric Holder was held in contempt on the floor. But, you know, once in eight years kind of shows the ability that we had to show that we were working in good faith with our colleagues, you know, down the street to try and meet their needs. Um, So I think that, you know, things can turn uh, more acrimonious when people just perceive that you're not really trying to get them the information that they need to do their job. I remember early in the Bush administration, uh, the Comptroller General sought documents from the vice president because he was chairing an energy task force. The vice president refused to turn that over. 
the Comptroller General sued, eventually backed down. Walker v. Cheney, I think, is an instructive uh, is an instructive case law on how far Congress can go, um, and that ended up actually limiting Congress's or at least GAO's authority to get those that that information. What does the landscape look like to you as you see what's happening as you see what uh, the new leadership in the House of Representatives and the new chairs have indicated interest in, what are you and what are you telling your clients about how to prepare for that? Not specific ones, but just broadly, are there themes or trends among what you're telling your clients about how to prepare for how some of this might impact them? Sure. So I, you know, we, I think in this conversation, we've so far focused on the executive branch, yeah. but of course we should recognize that Congress has the power to investigate private enterprise as well. Really anything that Congress can legislate over or regulate, it can investigate. The, the, the power is derived directly from the constitution. They're empowered to legislate. So it's pretty much everything. So it's pretty much everything. That's right. I, I should say the old executive branch lawyer, me should say that it's not quite everything, even though we haven't really litigated the contours. The courts have said that they don't have the power to conduct what are called legislative trials. They can't really go after an individual in the way that a prosecutor can because prosecuting is an executive branch function, not a legislative function. That said, they can look at you know waste, fraud, abuse, uh, misconduct in the government, um, but that's all a part to inform their ability to legislate appropriately, figuring out if there's loophole, loopholes or, or uh, new areas that they need to appropriate money. The reason that I ask that is because, I, in addition to the high-level people in government that listen to this program, I also hear from folks in the contracting community that listen to this program, and I imagine those will be some of the folks, and, and I'm not just thinking about some of the big agencies, but some of the smaller ones as well, where some members have already indicated, we're really going to take a microscope to you guys. And it strikes me that those are the kinds of people that should be curious, at least, about what the oversight landscape looks like in the next year to two years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're, you know, advising industries and as are others to uh, pay attention to what the committee chairman are saying they're interested in. Um, there's a fair amount of transparency around it. Each of these committees has to submit an oversight plan, which they haven't done yet. I'm, I'm not saying they're late. We, you know, this Congress is what? 10 days old or so. Right. So they're still working on those plans. But I think there's a lot of people out there in private enterprise that will be looking keenly at those oversight plans. What are the things that you, as someone who cares about this field as much as you do, what are some of the things that are that are on your radar screen? What are you interested to see how it develops? Well, you know, I... I'm interested to see how the accommodations process uh, works in this current landscape, right? I mean, we can't – the elephant in the room is we're talking in the middle of a government shutdown. Mm -hmm. So things are not normal um, in how they operate. And the accommodations process really works best when there's trust on both sides. So talk a little bit about your practice, which has one of the great names – got to have one of the great names, the – Government controversies practice. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit what that looks like. What does that mean? What, what does your client group look like? Sure. So my uh, colleagues are a lot of former government employees, and our clients are often folks that come to us for our expertise in dealing with various agencies, dealing with Congress, obviously, um, dealing with the White House, having worked in these various places, um, to help them come up with sort of holistic strategies around 
problems that take into account the Washington environment. So you could sort of think of it as a Washington problems type of practice. Often it includes internal investigations and advice with an eye towards, um, you know, what are other people going to think about uh, what the investigation reveals, not just courts and judges as would be in traditional practices, but what people in this town would think about it as well. Political opinion and public opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. What, how does, how is that different? How is the consideration of that different than the factual findings that somebody conducting an investigation would, um, would think? And how does that make a difference as to how you interact with your clients or advise your clients? Sure. You know, there are things that that are legally true Mm -hmm. or things that are objectively true and legally advantageous to say that uh, does not always play well on the Hill. And if you are dealing with a problem that you know will attract the attention of the Hill, you need to be mindful of the potential downside risk in making those legal arguments. Now, you may make them anyway, but we would like our clients to do so with their eyes wide open, and we help them see what those risks are. That's fascinating. So uh, any good stories that you can share about uh, um, uh, in your practice or in your experience in government that you think would be instructive? Well, I can give one from government. Um, just, you know, I know that this, we're all here about good government That's here, right? right? Um, and so one of the issues that uh, some of your listeners may remember was when there was a fence jumper at the White House. And I was in the White House at that time. And Lockdown. My, yeah. Right. Yes. Um, and it, it resulted in bipartisan oversight from the House Oversight Committee, really looking at how, you know, how did this happen? How did somebody run across the White House lawn? And walk through the front door. I mean, literally walk through, you know, an open door. And you might say, well, you know, why are White House lawyers worried about this or why are they necessarily involved? And I think that, you know, we wanted Congress to be able to do its job. Everybody was interested in making sure the Secret Service is getting the resources it needs, the training it needs. Everybody's on the same page. But you also have to recognize the President of the United States lives in that building. Mm-hmm. It's his residence. So part of, you know, the, the job as a White House lawyer is just making sure that we're being um, necessarily protective of that reality while helping Congress to get the information that we all want it to get to be able to make decisions. So that's, that's the accommodation process. Exactly. My father-in-law was in the White House when a plane uh, crashed into it. Um, but that's for different uh, no, I think that would be there. good to yeah. to cover right now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, a small plane crashed into the White House uh, intentionally, and the guy, I think, died. And uh, When was, was that? Uh, Clinton administration. So wow. that should tell you. When. I don't know I don't know the exact date. But I don't when, remember that. You don't? Me yeah. Either. No. So it happened. That's no. oh, man. Oh, and to be there the day it happened. But we go down a rat hole. Well, that's all right. That's arcana. That's yeah. why we do this. Um, final thought, and thank you very much for being here. It's a terrific conversation. Um, what should people in the executive branch agencies be thinking about, worried about, paying attention to? You talked a little bit about what you're advising your clients in the private sector, but is it the same kind of agenda that people should be tracking in the maybe even in the council's offices in each of the executive branch agencies? You know, I, th- I would imagine people in the White House Counsel's Office already have a very good idea of what the House is interested in. I mean, truthfully, the as I said, the chairman have been pretty transparent. They've been going on Sunday shows and talking about what they're interested in. I don't think that there's going to be a huge number of surprises about their priorities. Um, but I think it'll be certainly interesting to watch for those of us that care about these issues. 
Emily, thank you very much for coming in and being on uh, Fed Heads with us today. It's great to have you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Robert, a good. terrific episode as always. Good to see you. This nice to see is, you. Uh, a foreshadowing of uh, what the couple, next couple years are going to look like. Thanks for listening to the Fed Heads, brought to you by Grant Thornton Public Sector. All of the resources talked about during the episode are available in the episode description. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter at GT Public Sector to join the conversation. And don't forget to leave us a comment or review on iTunes or the Google Play Store.